0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhart. Hello, and thank you for letting us join you today. This is episode number 14 of The Next Track. We have a few things we wanted to talk about in this episode, kind of be a little less formal, and uh, we'll start with the results of... Kirk's experiment from last week?
1: Well, as we discussed in last week's show, I had never heard a Pearl Jam song or album, at least not intentionally. And as promised, I did listen to a Pearl Jam album right after we recorded the show, in fact. I listened to Pearl Jam's 10, their first album, uh, following Chris Conacher's recommendation. Right. And I kind of liked it. Uh-huh. I
0: appreciated it. So. Weird... What, 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 what didn't you like about
1: it? As much as I liked the music, it's the sound that turned me off. It was too... That sort of high treble distortion guitar hurts my ears after a while.
0: Maybe they have a lighter sounding album, like uh, Smooth Grunge or something. Well, isn't there a Pearl Jam Unplugged? Uh, I think they did do MTV Unplugged, but I don't think they released an album of it like a lot of people were doing at the time. They do some lighter things on other albums. And remember, Ten is their brash debut album. And I think it's a tremendous record. I mean, the tracks you still hear, Jeremy Alive, even flow, Black, these are still all rock radio staples. Anyway.
1: Uh, there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal and it's called, A Gift for Music Lovers Who Have It All, A Personal Utility Pole." What is that, you ask?
0: I am, I'm asking you that mentally right now.
1: This article is about some music lovers in Japan that the journalist calls Japan's extreme audiophiles. They install private power sources to generate, air quotes, pure electricity.
0: And what's the pile of super logic behind this?
1: So the logic is that the power supply isn't good enough. And the only way to get it right is to build your own utility pole with a transformer. It's not the pole itself that's the thing. It's the transformer right. here that that really counts. Of course. And they interview an 82-year-old Queen fan who spent $10,000 to plant a concrete pole in his front yard. Now, there are so many things that one could say about this, like he, he says, now it feels like Queen is in this room just for me. And it sounds so much better. And we had this discussion with Andy Doe in our episode when he talked about people with magical bat ears, And the power is certainly not what's going on here. It's there, There's a powerful placebo effect.
0: Yeah, well, for $10,000, that better be a powerful placebo effect. A
1: $10,000 placebo effect, indeed. What's really interesting, and and there are a couple of comments that some, I I posted a link to this article on my website and a couple of comments. One commenter said I'd have to budget for two poles, one for each of my monoblock amps. because he doesn't want any crosstalk. <laughs> um, another one said the guy should install solar panels. That way he can fully control the production of his electricity. And that's a really good point, because you're still dependent on the downstream electricity, even though you've got a transformer. If that downstream electricity isn't pure, the transformer might not be good enough.
0: Yeah, but going solar, I mean, it seems to me for, for $10,000, you could set yourself up pretty well with a with a good solar situation.
1: Or Or he builds his own generator. But but a point that someone made on Twitter is the guy's 82 years old. Can he really hear the difference between anything like that? I mean, I'm having trouble listening to Pearl Jam. Can he still really appreciate Queen at his age?
0: Well, apparently so. He's gone to an awful lot of trouble.
1: I, I don't want to laugh at audiophiles in general because there, there's a lot of interesting stuff that these people do. But this, I'm sorry, is just ridiculous.
0: Well, uh, also speaking of age, an article from yougov.co.uk has published some stats about people who are fueling the current vinyl resurgence and it actually goes against the conventional uh narrative it's not millennial hipsters it's music obsessed gen xers and boomers this article says people who have purchased a vinyl album recently are more likely to be 45 and older whereas millennials 18 to 24 year olds are the least likely to have bought vinyl in in the uk anyway now I love the sound of of analog recordings, but there's no way I'm going to start buying and playing vinyl again. I mean, it's like when you buy a new car, it depreciates as soon as you drive it off the lot, right? Well, as soon as the needle hits the groove and gravity and friction take over, I mean, the quality of the album diminishes. So other than for the novelty or the nostalgia, uh, I just don't see why anyone would actually really want to play any vinyl on a regular basis.
1: Well, I I find it interesting that so my son is a big fan of EDM, electronic dance music, and it's not uncommon to have a sort of vinyl sound overlay on these tracks with pops and clicks and things like that.
0: Yeah, they had like, uh, like analog artifacts, artificial analog artifacts.
1: But I can't see choosing to listen to your music like that you know we grew up with this stuff we put pennies on our tone arms when the things were really bad I mean we went to lengths um with these cleaning fluids and cleaning brushes and putting books on albums to try and unwarp them and all remember all those things that you'd have to do
0: oh yeah my bugaboo was uh turntable rumble yeah I mean because I could hear people walking around the house through the speakers because it would come through the vibration of the turntable and what I used to do was like I'd put it in a stand and then uh throw a, like a big bag of sand at the bottom of the stand to keep the, uh, kind of diminish the, the rumble that would come through from vibrations around the house.
1: Well, you'd have to buy one of those audiophile stands.
0: Oh yeah, the floating magical
1: pyramid turntable stand? That makes the soundstage better and all that. Yeah. I, I have some vinyl albums and the only ones I've bought are as collectibles or to support bands and musicians. And other than that, I'm... I, I I don't own a turntable. I won't play any of these. I I, I also bought the last Brian Eno album on clear vinyl because it was a limited edition, and I'll fog it on eBay in five years.
0: Right. I get the uh, collectible and limited edition aspect of it, but there's no way you're going to be able to retire on what you can sell your record collection for, you know?
1: The one thing I could actually see with um, LPs is putting some of them in frames, making, say... Uh, um, what would you call it? Not a montage, not a, a mosaic of a couple of, get a big frame, put like, you know, nine album covers, three by three of some really nice album covers.
0: Yeah, and you know what?
1: Because the artwork on albums and particularly
0: from the 70s is really quite nice. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd buy the album covers without the vinyl. I mean, if there were original replicas with liner notes and sleeves and all the other junk that comes with an album, I'd uh, I'd pick a few of those up, that'd be fun. Uh, I don't know if the uptick in vinyl sales has to do with this. But Newberry Comics, which for years has been a very popular record store chain here in the Boston area and in New England, and which has been closing stores over the past few years due to the decline in physical album sales, is remarkably opening a new location at the end of the month in New York, just outside the city. Uh, Where is this? Maybe you know this area.
1: Yes, this store is going to be in Roosevelt Field, which is a mall in Garden City, which is just... East of Queens, basically. Uh, I used to go there. My mother used to go there a lot. I think she would go there for the Bloomingdale's.
0: Well, that that sounds somewhat upscale. Uh, This article wonders um, when so many New York area record stores have closed, not only the big chains like Tower, but some of the famous independents like Bleeker Bob's, um, that perhaps a store outside the city where retail space is cheaper may be good for margins and maybe they'll make a go of it.
1: My guess is that this has turned into an upscale Area Well, it was still, it had some upscale stores back in the day, but my guess is it's now an upscale enough area that the demographic who buys records, so old people without being too old, right? Um, are likely to go there. I find it interesting. But they don't just sell records, right? They sell comics and other
0: things. Yeah, they sell CDs, DVDs, books, posters, toys. Right. But I can't see them carrying a whole lot of product these days. I mean, they got to compete with Amazon and iTunes, so they can't have everything. Uh,
1: There's a photo here. It actually looks a lot like a chain here called HMV which has, I think the entire chain shut down now. There was one of these stores in New York and you'd go in and you'd see some records and then you'd go in the back, there'd be books and T-shirts and DVDs upstairs and all that. It's interesting that here that these have all died. There was one in my town here, Stratford-upon-Avon. There was one in New York when I lived there. Maybe this pendulum is going back and that people are seeing that this is a way to buy something as a gift. This is a way to buy something as a keepsake. But maybe there's a certain demographic for whom... The shopping experience of bringing a record home still has some value. Yeah, I, but I
0: don't know. They must realize that opening a brick and mortar store to sell physical media sounds very nineties. So maybe they've got research that suggests they can survive on on mall traffic. That's that's very possible. So it'd be interesting to see how this uh, how this goes.
1: So we have some iTunes news this week iTunes 12.5, which is available only as a beta version if you have a developer account or if you've signed up for the public beta of macOS Sierra, the latest versions of iTunes 12.5 have added some very interesting features. And last week, we talked a little bit about the classical music features they've added. And we'll link in the show notes to some stuff that Doug did with some Apple scripts to manage classical works and movements. What exactly did these do, Doug?
0: Yeah, I started manually filling in some work and movement tags for the tracks in a couple of classical albums. And what happens is that in the Get Info window, when you decide to use the work and movement tag fields, the song name field becomes hidden. And that's when the work and movement tags become visible. Now, most of the stuff that I wanted to use in the work and movement tags was already in the song name tag. So what i had to do was toggle the song name visible select and copy the text i wanted from it toggle the work and movement tags visible again and then paste the text and then go to the next track i just said next track toggle the song name copy toggle back paste next rinse repeat all the live long day so i wrote a couple of scripts that will let you edit the song name text and apply it to either the work or the movement tags without all the clicking and the dancing. And, oh, and uh, one of them also increments the movement number tags. Um, movements within a work can be numbered like track numbers.
1: Now, if you were able to follow all that, um, that means you understand the utilities of, the, of these Apple scripts. If that didn't make any sense to you, then you don't need to worry about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is for classical music fans who are slightly obsessive.
0: Although I do wonder if there is a use for these new tags outside of classical tagging.
1: Well, let's see. Why would you want a work for something that's not classical? I I can think I can think of a handful of songs that are actually part of a longer work. You occasionally get something like this where there are multiple tracks that aren't segued into single tracks on a on a a, a CD or a, an LP.
0: Well, I was thinking in terms of like um like organizing sound effects or for like some of the things that I do, I produce voice audio and sometimes for a project uh, might be helpful to have a like a, a subgrouping using work or movement. Or things like uh, voice memos or, or even audiobooks.
1: Well, let's say you're a DJ and you want to plan your DJ set. This could be a good way that you plan your set with whatever name you give it. Maybe it's a date or a venue. And then the movement is each individual track name within that. And this allows you to see it in a different way. I think there are interesting possibilities, so yeah, if anyone has any ideas, do do write in. There there are a couple of other new things in iTunes, and we'll link to them. One is there's a bit more color in the latest version of iTunes. Another is that Apple might be sort of getting rid of star ratings. We mentioned about the love and dislike uh, ratings last week. In the iOS 10 music app, you currently can't use star ratings anymore, and so they haven't disappeared from iTunes, but they seem to be, as developers like to say, deprecated, that they won't be the main way that people are expected to rate
0: tracks. Yeah, in the new beta, you can turn stars off, but you can't turn the hearts off.
1: So the other big change in iTunes 12.5 is lyrics. Um, This is something that Apple's, I don't remember if they've expressly said this in the past or, or if they've just hinted on it, the latest beta of iTunes 12.5 has lyrics available, and the latest music app in iOS 10 also has lyrics. We'll link to an article on my website where I have some screenshots. Basically, the Up Next button, which is the one to the right of the iTunes LCD... Open parenthesis. The iTunes LCD is that bit at the top center of the window that displays the track name and the time and all that. Close parenthesis. The Up Next button now has three tabs, Up Next, History, and Lyrics. And if you happen to be playing a song where Apple can provide lyrics, it will fetch them from a server. We don't know exactly where. Now if you've already added lyrics to your songs in your library, it will also display them.
0: Which is great because I don't use the lyrics tag for lyrics. I put other stuff in there, so I don't want Apple overriding my lyrics tag with lyrics.
1: (laughs) Right. And so those of you who have been obsessively adding lyrics to your tracks, even though you never look at them any place, you will now be pleased to know that they have some value. In addition to seeing the lyrics from the Up Next button, you can also see them by clicking this same button on the mini player window. So the mini player window can float over other windows, so you can have the lyrics display even when you're not looking at the iTunes window.
0: Yeah, and when the song changes, the lyrics change, just like the artwork.
1: So that so that does make it practical. So in iOS 10, if you tap the little ellipsis button in the player, what do they call that? the now playing screen or whatever... And you scroll down and you see a lyrics option and you tap that and the lyrics display. Now, you may remember previously on iOS, you would just tap the album artwork. And if there were any lyrics, they would display then. I kind of wish they displayed when you tap the artwork now because it's one, two taps to get there, whereas before it was just a single tap.
0: Do the lyrics stay visible when the song changes in iOS? We're going
1: to find out.
0: Oh, you got it right there.
1: So I've got an Apple Music playlist here, and I'm holding my iPad Touch right above my microphone so you can hear how it sounds. And I have the lyrics displayed, and I could read along with them as um, Jeff Buckley starts singing. Now, if I go to the control center and I press the next button, we have Billy Joel's Piano Man. And if I go back to the lyrics display it, display, it doesn't display the lyrics. So I still see the Hallelujah lyrics. However, if I close the lyric pane and I tap the ellipsis and I tap lyrics again, then I do get the lyrics. So unfortunately, it doesn't play along um, as you change tracks.
0: Well, it's beta, so maybe it is I'll a fix beta, that. right? Now, uh, now that they're listening to this podcast, they'll oh, we got to fix that.
1: Yes, um, please. I know some people from Apple do listen to this podcast. And so if you're listening to this segment, we would really like to see the lyrics change as we go along as tracks switch. So I I think lyrics is a nice addition. I know most people don't care about lyrics, but I actually do. And it's not just when I'm listening to Bob Dylan's Desolation Row, whose lyrics I have been trying to memorize for a very long time, but... I was listening to some Ultravox songs this morning, and I'm a a big fan of their first three albums, the one with John Fox, and I I was actually thinking that, well, you know, I don't know all these lyrics really well, and some of them are extremely good. Calling cards of madness pull the brass men from their knees to petrify more images to dangle just outside the reach. That's from The Wild, The Beautiful, and The Damned. And I actually did, I, I picked about a half a dozen Ultravox songs to listen to, and I pasted the lyrics into them. I'm not kidding. So... Every once in a while, I do want to know what the lyrics say, because for the best of music, lyrics are poetry.
0: You know, um, Spotify had lyrics for a really long time. They stopped displaying them in June or something. But I'm wondering why it took Apple so long to being able to get them. I'm
1: sure it's a licensing thing. But as you say, if Spotify was doing it, then why wasn't Apple doing it? Well, we were talking earlier about the, the kind of information you used to get in uh, LPs, and this is one of them. You would get lyrics, not for every album, of course, but some albums would have lyrics. A seasoned witch could call you from the depths of your disgrace and rearrange your liver to the solid mental grace.
0: Why, you've just gone plum lyrics loco.
1: <laughs> you know, the, the other day when, when I was testing this lyrics thing, I pulled up um, an Apple Music playlist of singer-songwriters from the 70s, and we were chatting about, wow, all these great songs, and and one of them that came up was American Pie, and I don't know why people actually think the American Pie lyrics mean anything. It's just things that rhyme together randomly that mean absolutely nothing.
0: That reminds me of something that I think Frank Zappa said, and that's that he didn't like writing words to songs. In fact, the only reason he did write lyrics is because people expected words to be part of songs, so he wrote words to be sung to his songs. But I think if he had his druthers, he'd have preferred uh, not to write any lyrics at all and just stuck with instrumental music.
1: Yeah, if if we wanna go into more obscure music, there's a Belgian uh, composer called Wim Mertens. His first album was initially recorded under the name Soft Verdict, as if it was the name of a band. It was on Les Disques du Crepuscu, the Belgian label, which released a lot of factory artists, which is how I discovered him originally. He sings in a made up language. So he does these piano and voice songs and he has a, a very high sort of countertenor voice and he makes up these syllables just to provide vocalizations over his piano in, in a melody.
0: What, the talking head song, E uh which you may be familiar with, I think it's from Fear of Music, that is a, a Dada song based on lyrics that were uh, generated by, and I can't think of the Dada guy who came up with these words. Yeah,
1: it's actually from a poem by... A German author named Hugo Ball, um, who was a Dada artist, and his poem was called "Gaji Berry Bimba." Very catchy name for a poem, actually. When you think of it,
0: "Gaji Berry Bimba," you know. Great song.
1: That definitely that that definitely fits as one of the best Talking Heads songs.
0: No argument here.
1: I really think so. That and "Life During Wartime." Th- those are yeah, those are some of the best. That, in fact. If we want to talk about the best Talking Heads album ever, I would say that that album, Fear of Music, is the best one because that really catches them at their peak before they sort of plunged into excessive rhythm. And and it's got Izimbra, it's got Memories Can't Wait, Life During Wartime, Air, Heaven. I mean, Heaven is just one of the greatest rock songs ever.
0: So Lyric Loco, I'll bet you've got the words right there in front of you.
1: Yes. And as the, the song goes, the band in heaven, they play my favorite song, play it one more time, play it all night long. That could be a sort of a motto for this podcast. And heaven is a place, a place where nothing, nothing ever happens. As a party. Everyone's there. Everyone will leave all exactly at the same time. Great song. Kudos to Talking Heads for that album, we're going to go to our next track segment in a second, and I already have a next track planned, but I think I'm also going to listen to Fear of Music this afternoon very, very loud, because that's one of those albums that really benefits from high volume and lots of boomy bass.
0: Truly. So, we haven't really done anything on car audio. Um, I have trouble keeping up with car audio technology, because it's like, you buy the car and whatever the entertainment system is, whatever the current lowest common denominator, state-of-the-art standard equipment it comes loaded with, you get stuck in time with it, you know? That's what you'll be using for the life of the car. And then you get a new car, and whoa, it's all new stuff. You're like Rip Van Winkle, you know, waking up from a five-year slumber. You just woke up in a 2008 Nissan Sentra, and you're like, what the heck happened? So right now, I think I'm really modern because I can plug a thumb drive into my car for music, But of course, that's really ancient technology now. So I got kind of a culture shock when I saw this article at Rain News, uh, which is radio and internet news, about how the radio receiver in the 2016 Honda Civic is being phased away. Uh, It's barely mentioned in Honda's promotional materials. And of course, what they really want to push is CarPlay and how to interface your phone with the car. So really, who needs a radio? I mean, and by radio, I mean the actual hardware. You don't need one in the car.
1: Well, I I kind of think that maybe there's a reason for this, that unless you're in a big city, you don't have great reception. And if you're driving uh, a distance, your radio comes in and out. So if you can access certain radio stations via streaming, so basically through your phone, right, then you'd be able to listen to something during a long trip. Whereas if you're going from Boston to New York, you've got your Boston station for a while, then maybe you get a New Haven station and you get close enough to New York, unless it's at night and they're 50,000 watt AM
0: stations. I, I just think the whole idea of having radio in the car is nuts if you've got a device that can connect to the internet. Frankly, I don't even like the sound of broadcast audio, especially in the car. It just to me sounds, I, well, it just sounds awful. Uh, especially if you're used to hearing music sound really good in other places like in your house or over your over your earbuds, so unless it 's news or talk i don't i don't use the radio in my car to listen to music stations um, i 'd sooner stream a local station before i 'd want to listen to its broadcast signal i just I just hate the processing most radio stations will do to their signals you know, to throw it further and get better coverage. It's just, it's it's so thin, it's all vocals, there's no drums.
1: Moby Dick kind of sounds like a piano sonata by Debussy or something.
0: <laughs> exactly. The, uh, the transmitted signal goes further when they squeeze it like that, and usually it's the mid-level frequencies you hear, maybe some extra bottom depending on the format, the music format of the station, but it, it's usually pretty compressed.
1: Uh, I'm thinking it's more likely that you if you're well they they don't make different radio broadcasts for cars and for um for homes and all that but if you consider that a lot of people listening to radio are listening to cars on small radios portable devices you know painters have their boomboxes when they're outdoors you don't hear the high frequencies in these environments so there's not much point of sending them you it's the mid range that comes through the most
0: right and when you compare like say a, a digital signal or even the signal from a from a decent streaming service I think radio just doesn't do it for me. So if Honda is compelling its customers to use CarPlay or uh, Android Auto is what it's called, Android Auto, uh, instead of the radio, then you know, that's a pretty big deal. Yet
1: people still listen to radio a lot. And yeah. I would think that I would think that for most people, the place they listen to the radio is in the car, at least if they commute in their cars. So there's kind of a, a lack of logic there, especially because commuting in a car is the time you listen to the news or the talk radio. Now, you don't need good quality sound, but the point is you don't want that hidden. You want that accessible.
0: Yeah, you're right that uh, local news and talk is important, but it is accessible because at least here in my area, I can get all my local stations via apps on the phone. So as you characterized something else earlier, it looks like radio is being deprecated, but the radio industry isn't going anywhere and news and talk sound better when they're streamed anyway. It sounds half as bad? Half as bad. (laughs) All right, it's time for us to tell you about our next tracks. That's the music that we'll be listening to next. Now, I remember the first time that I saw the movie From Dusk Till Dawn, which is a Quentin Tarantino, uh, Robert Rodriguez vampire movie. And as the end credits were rolling, there was some band playing something, And I remember thinking at the time, gee, they're really trying to sound like ZZ Top. Well, it turns out that it was ZZ Top. The song was called She's Just Killing Me from their 1996 album Rhythmine, which is really one of my favorite records, actually. Uh, I'm not wild anymore about what I'll call ZZ Top's video-era songs. I much prefer the earlier Texas boogie sound, and Rhythmine sounds like an attempt to get back to that after the uh, MTV era. There are few, if any, synthesizers and samplers and a much more reserved and minimal but tense electric feel. It's got a very clean sound there, patented double entendre lyrics, and great Billy Gibbons guitar playing. All three guys are great, but it really does sound like a, a Billy Gibbons album throughout. It's rockin', it's ZZ Top Rhythmine. What do you got, Kirk?
1: I have a new Grateful Dead recording, which I'm showing Doug over Skype here and video. It is Dave's Picks, volume 19. It's from January 23rd, 1970 in the Honolulu Civic Auditorium in Honolulu, Hawaii. Now, if you're a deadhead, you'll know, oh, January 1970, sure, totally. And if you're not, well, let me just explain why this is interesting. The, The dead was changing radically between 1969 and 1970. In 69, they recorded their album Live Dead and... In the early months of 1969, pretty much every concert they did, they would play Dark Star, St. Stephen, The Eleven. These were things that they were going to put on the album, and this was their core repertoire. In 1970, they released two albums, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, which included sort of Crosby stills and Nash harmonies, folk songs, acoustic things. So this is the sort of transitionary period. This is one week before Tom Constantin, left the band. He'd been playing keyboards since 1968. So this is the end of this particular sound the band had developed in 1969. And it includes a number of these songs that would be on the two more mellow albums, uh, Black Peter, Casey Jones' Direwolf, Mason's Children, and even I'm a King Bee, which is a great old blues song that Pigpen just rips apart. Now, you can't buy this record, what they do is they release 16,500 copies of them and i have number 7,153 the best way to get them is to subscribe it's 100 bucks a year for four releases plus a bonus disc because when these things do come out the sort of official release there's only a couple thousand copies left and this one sold out in less than 24 hours for those of us who are grateful dead obsessed we have to have all these things so it's dave's picks volume 19 it's 12370 by the grateful dead in hawaii
0: This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.